0: Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show, where we explore spiritual ideas and books that help you live a better life. Hosted by spiritual teacher and author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, Jason Napolitano. All right. Hello. Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Podcast. We are here every Sunday with a new episode. And this week, we're going to be speaking about meditation, disciplines, and personal integration by Manly Manly p hall and we're doing parts three and four last week chris and i did parts one and two so go back and check that out if you want to listen to that uh, of course we have a new podcast up every sunday so there's uh we're, there's three on there now and i encourage you to go back and check those out uh, as i said uh, my co-host is chris sheridan he is on the phone right now go ahead and introduce yourself there chris Well, thanks, Jason. I'm Chris Sheridan,
1: and uh, we have known each other a long time and have long studied metaphysics and mainly Hall and the works of many others. Uh, I just published a book called The Spirit in the Sky. It's a memoir about an experience I had in a plane crash a number of years ago. And uh, this is really great being involved with this podcast and talking about the subject that has been such an interest of mine for so many years.
0: Absolutely. You, you and me both. And we, uh, we met each other at the philosophical research society, as we talked about before, uh, Manly Hall's organization uh, in Los Angeles, uh, which is still functioning today. And uh, that was a real blessing for us to be able to spend some time there and learn more about Mr. Hall and his work. Uh, I uh, have a book out right now called If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. And you can find that on Amazon or on uh, my website called cosmiceye.org and Chris's uh book is available on Amazon as well and you can find that information at chrissheridan.com. So now that we've got our plugs out of the way, Mm -hmm. uh, we can jump right into meditation disciplines and personal integration. A fantastic book. I love this uh I love this little pamphlet and I'm really happy that we did the this in two parts because it really is such a rich little book. There's so much to it that it, it it needs reading several times to really get all that you can out of it. Would you agree with that? Well, definitely. And that's a hallmark of uh, a lot of Manley Hall's
1: works is that he does pack a lot of information. It's very dense. So you could read a paragraph or two and just go, wait a minute. Think about that for a while. It's, uh, you, plowing ahead to get to the next paragraph or chapter is not really an advantage. It's probably better to take bites of it or read it once and then go back and really kind of pick it apart Um, because there's there's just so many gems in there and he covers a lot of ground in surprising depth for how relatively small this is under 100 pages Um, yeah it's quite uh, a bit of
0: information uh, 76 uh, pages total and it feels like uh like a 300 page book i mean when you start digging into it And that was that's a great point you bring up. You know, the thing that's so great about this book is it becomes like a meditative exercise, the reading of it. In other words, like taking those chunks and going slowly through and contemplating them and really taking the time to be mindful of what's going on as you're thinking about them and being really focused on this text is a a form of contemplation or meditation and the book can be used as a, as an aid to, to concentration and meditation, which is, is a fantastic way to use it. Plus it's got some great images in there that you can use as well. So I like that quite a bit about this. Uh, one thing I wanted to get into about this book and, and we talked about this uh, a bit earlier before the show uh, is, is mysticism. I think sometimes the idea of mysticism or the word mystic and the ideas associated with that are, are misunderstood today. So I wanted to give a real quick definition and then I want to have you speak on this a bit. My main understanding of mysticism is that it's a belief that there's a union or, or an absorption into God or the absolute possible and that this is attainable through spiritual insight or contemplation or meditation. And mysticism is the path at which one becomes absorbed in in God, one, one discovers the divinity within and the two, the two become one. That's sort of my little uh, understanding of it. But one other interesting thing, and we can talk about this a little bit after you give your idea or definition, but Google, the second definition they have up there is it's a belief characterized by self-delusion or dreamy confusion of thought, especially when based on the assumption of occult qualities or mysterious agencies. And I find that mysticism, <laughs> much like the, the word myth, which has been bastardized and destroyed to mean false or, or unreal, they're taking mysticism to mean, and they, they're, you know how they put the sentence afterwards as well to, to sort of describe the meaning of it. It was something about the book title was imbued with. New Age mysticism or some, something along these lines, which was denigrating to both the New Age ideas and esotericism and you know mysticism in general. So unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of people today have the idea that it's some sort of self-delusion or dreamy unreality or something false. Um, speak to both of those, if you can, the idea of what you think mysticism is and maybe some of the misconceptions today.
1: Well, sure too.
0: Uh, And this, you know, I maybe
1: felt guilty of this uh, in my younger years. When you think of a mystic uh, you think of somebody who was a little removed uh, from society. He's probably as a, you know, it's probably a guy with a strange beard. Um, He was not really here. He's a little in the clouds uh, and it's just ephemeral and you know, mist, like the the actual mist uh, vapor Mm. in the air that it's, you know, not really a cloud. It's not really rain. It's just this kind of foggy um, netherworld um, that that is inhabited by mystic thinking and you're lost in the clouds or pie in the sky, somehow removed from the world. And uh, that is pretty much exactly the opposite um, of what a mystic is as far as an approach to religion or spiritual contact. Um, whereas in a dogmatic or cultic, and I don't mean cult in a, in a bad way either, that, that uh, word also has been kind of screwed up. Cult really comes from cultivation to, you know, you cultivate, um, you know, your spiritual discipline mm-hmm. and uh, practice. Um, whereas um, a mystic, it's not well to, to use maybe a Christian mystic, uh, for example, in uh maybe mainstream Christianity, you have to believe in Jesus being the Savior, and you have to have faith in that uh and that it's true, and there' was historical Jesus and you know is the one and only uh, path and way uh to uh approach God mm-hmm. and you can take a Christ, a Christian mystic uh which is in a way it's a mystic is uh, the mystic part defines I think the spiritual seeker uh more than if it's a Sufi or um, Muslim mystic or if it's a Kabbalah or a Jewish mystic or if it's an Indian or a Taoist mystic or, or anything like that sure the sure. mystic part I think is because it's the approach and it really requires you to take whatever dogma or text may be involved with it like buddhism is essentially you know mystic in its entirety uh there's the four noble truths and the uh, eightfold path but the only way it works is if you apply
0: it into your life and to me that's what a mystic mean means a mystic is someone who so it's someone more practical in essence someone that's taking action towards finding those truths and going beyond the doctrine and the dogma to find the universal truths below it is that kind of what you're saying and it's incredibly down to earth
1: it's yeah you know does it work in your life are you applying these rules um love your enemy okay sounds nice and you can say that at church on sunday um but uh, but the next time somebody cuts you off in traffic or a business partner betrays you and embezzles your life savings or a number of other tragedies yeah. and traumas that come at sure, us, and, sure. you know, creates these enemies and hatred and anger in our hearts uh, towards these people, but to, uh, you know, maybe not approve of what they did, but at least, you know, send love out. Cause if somebody who does something that nasty you might be lacking in love uh, sure. and what does that mean? Or even just to try it, you know, a lot of times you don't even want to try something. Uh, But it it is a discipline in that it's a practice like martial arts, playing an instrument, anything athletic with sports or nutrition. You have to bring it into your body and use it. It's not about knowing and believing. It goes beyond that. That makes sense. I know what to do and I believe in this and I'm going to apply it. And then see if that's, it works. And if that works, yeah, then you yeah. have faith that this thing works. But it
0: only comes after having tried it in a meaningful way. So that's a mystical that's a great, approach. As far as I'm that's a great way to put it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it, it reminds me of, you spoke Buddhism a little bit. And it reminds me of Buddha Buddhist saying about how you shouldn't believe things because a holy person told you you shouldn't believe them because you read them in a book. You know you shouldn't believe them because other people believe them, but you believe the things that you believe because you have direct experience with them, and that's I think what you get at when, when you talk about mysticism, that it's a practical knowing and a knowing with a capital K. In other words, not a piece of of information, but a but a embodied, uh, u- universal piece of wisdom that you've realized in the bigger bigger sense of the word realization. Uh, Make of it that, real of, of that yeah you've made it real in your own uh, in your own soul I, there's a great quote i wanted to read um off of page 37 uh again really quickly though let's uh, tell the reader excuse me the listener where they can read along with this if they want to follow along with us and they don't have the book i will say this you can get meditation disciplines and personal integration either on the uh prs website or on Amazon or any other uh, a book site, but also you have that great source that uh, you got your, yours from. And can you tell the, the listener where that is again?
1: Uh, yes, the actual book uh, is pulled from four separate articles that ran in the PRS journal in 1962. And there are PDF and uh, text searchable PDFs of all of these journals It came out quarterly Uh, For many, many years, it was called Horizon at one point, then he changed the name to The Journal, uh, and that's which one uh, these are from. So if you go to this website, it's a great resource well beyond this, but just to look through the pages of these journal and Horizon, and before that it was called All Seeing Eye, these periodicals, um, that was the original source of these. There were four consecutive articles, and they became parts one through four of this uh, rather dense pamphlet.
0: What would they actually look up to get these, to get these articles? What should they enter in to search? The website is
1: manlyphall.info. Okay. And it's, it's, it's very easy to navigate. Uh, It's been a labor of love from uh, a gentleman who put this all together and the scans of the PRS journals do have the approval um, of the PRS itself uh,
0: to do that, so there's nothing on the sly about it. It's all been okay by the uh, perfect. The That's official. fantastic. So it's a great and, source, and you can. And go what year? That. What I can't remember. What was the years? Nineteen sixty-two. Nineteen sixty-two, and then they can go through and find these find these uh, meditation disciplines and personal integration articles. They should be in there. All right, perfect. So let me go yeah. into. Uh, my quote this is from page thirty seven in the in the book the book version it 's a pamphlet it 's uh, seventy six pages uh, page thirty seven There can be no real and adequate mystical concept unless the person has the inward realization that religion is a universal experience as man goes into the deeper parts of his personal nature, he passes from the experience of the personal toward a recognition of a universal nameless power abiding in the innermost parts of his own nature. So he's going within to find God or going within to find the absolute. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful quote from, from Mr. Hall. And that kind of leads us into the next portion of the, uh, the book that we wanted to talk about. And that's the universal ideas shared by both the East and the West. First quickly, we're going to characterize um because Manly Hall gets into this a little bit of the differences between the approach to religion and mysticism in the East versus the West. And then we're going to talk a little bit about Pythagoras and, uh, some of the information that he shared and how that came about. So do you want to talk a little bit about East versus West in terms of how religion is approached? Well, sure. Um, I'll, uh, I'll do we, West versus
1: East. <laughs> we'll go that way. Okay, perfect. Absolutely. Um, because that's the way I have it in my notes. Uh, and I don't have to flip it around. Uh, so in the West, uh, worship is quite often a public thing. Uh, or It is in a church, but it's still a public. There's a body of people there. <laughs> East, uh, worship is more contemplative. Now there are temples and shrines and services as well. Uh, but it's more of a personal thing it 's something you can do on your own uh, as opposed to a group um, the The West culturally um, puts a lot of pressure, so to speak, on the worshiper because a quiet, removed contemplative life or a practice really runs against the prevailing wind of the culture of the dominant culture. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, you're out there in the world, you want to move forward, you know, how am I going to be successful? I have to provide my family and all these things uh, that seem, there's more of an emphasis on that. So to pull back and have a contemplative practice in life, you almost have to go against the cultural direction. Whereas in the East, that's a lot more accepted. That's a lot more just normal. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. to have that part of your life um, and have that be valid. Uh, It doesn't compete with the culture. And and these cultures still move forward and they still progress and provide for their families and do all these things that the West does. But this approach uh, to worship uh, is very different. So for somebody in the West to want to have a meditative discipline and a more mystical approach, uh, it might be a little more difficult Uh, and take a little more doing because it's not quite so supported by the cultural norms. So that's another. Yeah. That's a great. And say another difference is also in the direction of prayer or meditation, like what we're having contact with the divine for Mm -hmm. Um, in the West, we want to be understood Uh, in the East. There's more of an emphasis on just wanting to understand the divine Mm -hmm. purpose and nature Uh, And on that, also, um, a lot of our prayers are directed towards human endeavors that uh, have this purpose that I want to fulfill and I want divine aid to help me in it. Um, Whereas in the East, uh, there's an emphasis on just uncovering and recognizing and coming in contact with the graces of the spirit. Very good. Which is different than having it kind of... the end result may, you know, be favorable as well. If, if you understand the graces of the spirit and you feel this contact with the divine presence, um, that's probably going to make things in your outer world and life work out a little bit better. Um, but it's, it's a little indirect. You're actually going straight
0: to spirit and having that inform your mind and decisions and things. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's interesting because it kind of reminds me of the overall sort of difference in culture between the East, by the way, when we're speaking of the East versus the West, obviously, there's no hard and fast rules. But just to at the risk of over, you know, kind of oversimplifying this, probably everyone who's listening knows this. But the, in the East, we're generally talking about India, China, Japan, Thailand, the the Eastern world, what used to be called the Orient. And in the West, we are talking about what used to be called the Occident. And the Manley Hall uses both of both of those terms in the book. Um, by we mean mostly in the West, uh, Greco-Greco-Roman, uh, Judeo-Christian culture uh, transmitted through through Europe and through the, the Mediterranean and the ancient Near East. So that's kind of um, a definition of of the West versus the East. But one interesting kind of uh, cultural difference that that uh, Jungians talk about is that the most Eastern countries and most Eastern peoples. Are more introspective and more um, um, what you would call an introverted personality, uh, where they're more more interested in the inner experiences of life versus the outer, whereas the West were more externally driven uh, extroverted type of a culture um, where we're 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 moving things and people around and making history quote unquote happen and things like that. Um, there was a nice quote that Manley Hall spoke of about Western man, he said, because Western man is constantly engaged in some some vast, all consuming project, his prayers are inclined to beseech divine aid for human purposes, which you talked about in the differences in prayer. And I thought that was mm-hmm. a great point. Um, so that's kind of some of the interesting things that are that are, that are different between the East and the West. Obviously today, you know, these are no hard and fast rules and, and cultures change over time. And the, the Eastern ideas, meditation, yoga, and so forth have taken root in the West to a great degree today, much greater than uh, even when Manly Hall was, was writing about these things. And it's much greater than when he was, um, when he had wrote his first book, secret teachings of all ages, when all this stuff seemed very exotic. So, you know, things are changing and I think we are becoming a little more aware of of the inner life here uh, in the united states and 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 in the West in general, um, so that kind of moves us moves us forward into the idea of uh, what I was speaking about earlier how actually these ideas sort of propagated themselves uh, through throughout uh, the East and the west and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that starting in that beginning of that that fourth uh, that fourth part where, where it talks about the early 5th century and mid-5th century um, movements. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about Pythagoras and, and how some of those things unfolded, um, if, you can, uh, if you can find that. That's a, great, that's a great section of the book, and I encourage everyone to, to read that. There's a really nice, concise history of, of how these ideas unfolded in both the East and the West and how they influenced each other. So maybe if you could speak to that a bit.
1: Well, sure. The uh, beginning kind of time frame that he lays out is the sixth century. Sixth century. Say that six times swiftly. And yeah, right. It's, uh, you know, so oh, six. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> in the 500s uh, B.C. or B.C.E. as we say now, uh, and that would include Laozi and Confucius uh, in China, and it would include the rise of Buddhism. And if there is a historical Um, time frame put on the Buddha. It's around that general uh, region. And um, Pythagoras and the uh, other pre-Socratic that is reappearing before Socrates. Uh, So there's Heraclitus, uh, Anaximander, Anaxagoras, and a number of other ones that flourished in the uh, Euclid uh, in that time as well. Um, And because at, you know, even at the time wrote road at some point that trade routes uh, having been established and along with them, not just trinkets and treasures from one culture to the next, uh, actually practices and beliefs and stories and, uh, you know, would have exchanged hands. Uh, and there were still at the time, uh, what were they called mystery schools? These were the secret sects and groups Uh, societies uh, that held this knowledge and the time when Pythagoras apparently traveled to the east, not exactly sure where, um, but he would have come in contact uh, through some of these eastern traditions and uh, sworn to secrecy uh, and certainly where he got them from. And then when he brought those back and started his school at Crotona um, there isn't the legend
0: that, uh, isn't the legend that he went to to India and was initiated into the mysteries in India I think I remember reading that, is that does that ring a bell something along yeah. those lines
1: um i mean there's no historical like with, with the brahmins at but... uh, elephanta um, ah, which right. you okay. know i guess is called mumbai now Mumbai uh, then uh, and you know but that may have even preceded buddha or been mm. around a similar time wow. frame. Yeah. so yeah uh, and you know quite possibly coming in contact with with a very similar source so it's I it's fascinating through this that quite possibly that the rise of Western Greek philosophy um, and the emergence and adoption of the Buddhistic tradition in India may have sp- sprung from the same. Branch, Uh, maybe from the same you know uh, source, uh, or at least have enough crossover. Certainly, the time frame, um, whatever was going on in the world, uh, in the universe at the time, it seemed to be a just an outflowing of. uh, There was a philosophy and ideas,
0: a particularly rich sort of period of time where it seemed to have influenced a lot of cultures, and these these ideas overlap. What's interesting. Is It sounds like what you're saying is that there was more of a, a universal source for a lot of these ideas. And maybe over time, they sort of calcified into different expressions in the East and in the West. And the West, of course, being more externally oriented, took these, these in a different direction maybe than the East did. Is that uh, fair to say that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, because
1: once they've been then pulled back into their own respective cultures, yes, they would. And in a way, they have to. Uh, or or people won't pick up on it if it isn't if it 's completely foreign and doesn't fit in uh, the culture, even yoga today in you know the american culture let's just call it that um, it's it changed a little bit <laughs> perhaps yeah. quite a bit and it's become a little bit more of a physical exercise yes it's sure. contemplative yes you're in balance and harmony and you're using Uh, mudras sutras and breathing techniques that are ancient and authentic uh it's expression that we have yoga studio and it's you know it it fits kind of the american sensibility sure Um, sure. because that's what we need if it's
0: yeah it's a bit more it's just been adapted and adapted sure and 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 but but it needs to to be you know denigrated it it, it, it does yeah yeah the other thing, just not to th- just get off track, but one of the things people forget about yoga is that the asanas and, and the actual physical ep- ep- uh, efforts are merely geared, geared towards readying one for, for meditation. And I think people forget that. So they'll spend, you know, an hour on, on sweating through a, a set of asanas at Bik- Bikram Yoga or wherever they go and they they don't end up doing the meditation at the end unfortunately they're too focused on the sort of physical part of it but again that's our, our western culture but at least it gives them a way to to focus and and to and to find physical expression to some of those uh inner inner ideas and so forth so i'm not denigrating it when i say that but it's a different again a different expression of of spirituality and we we do that with i think that reminds me of the uh, the idea of the, uh, the sort of archetypal and then the particular or, or, you know, kind of cultural variations on it. So you have, you know, an archetypal or universal idea and then you have the localized expression of, of that particular idea The you know, what you might, let's say, if we look at it in the terms of the gods, you know, you have the idea of uh, like I spoke about, I think a couple of weeks ago, so a communicative or, you know, a, a, a sort of a communicator between the worlds like a Hermes or a Mercury or in, or in uh, African Yoruba uh, ideas, it, it would be Elagua. You, you have a sort of a messenger deity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be the more particular. And then the universal idea is a you know, a messenger between the worlds, let's say, and it's yeah, a, particular, and the a particular, right. So that, sure. that's the universal versus the cultural a particular of expression but i'm but i'm getting off track so getting getting back to this um that that was a nice overview of that and again i encourage uh encourage the listeners encourage the listeners to uh to read through that section uh in part four and get an idea of where some of these ideas come from and how they've been expressed differently uh throughout the years and and, and how culture has shaped those uh the next big chunk i wanted to get into is uh where he talks about mysticism and meditation and how those are are locked together and I'll let you talk about that in a second. Well, I wanted to say uh, uh to give a quote. It's a, it's a short one, but he says uh Manly Hall says mysticism and meditation have always been intimately associated. Mysticism bridges the inter interval between religion and philosophy. And I think that's what you were talking about before about mysticism being more practical. You're carrying it over into your, your daily living as opposed to it being some sort of doctrine or dogma. And, and Manley Hall suggests that, the, that the, the connection is the meditation and the, the contemplation, and then that carries over into, uh, into your actual actions, day-to-day uh, actions that you're taking. Can you comment on that a little bit? Well, that's one of the
1: functions of meditation is that through stilling and calming the body, And going deeper to calm the mind, um, you're pulled out of the world and the worldly concerns and fears and uh, agendas and uh, just multitude of uh, things that we carry around in our inner life. And it's those things that are the obstacles to our connection to spirit and divine mind is that. This process of meditation, it doesn't really bring in spirit or turn up, you know, the, the divine presence. Uh, it quells all the things that are standing in the way. Our own minds, the monkey mind, if you want to borrow from Buddhism, um, and just this stream of thoughts and conditioning. And to get to maybe a more pure, relaxed state, then the Gifts, then the voice through this messenger uh, speaking from the divine uh, to us, uh, we can hear it then because all the other static, all the other radio stations have been eliminated from the spectrum, and we have a much more clear channel of something that's already there. We just—it's been obscured by our that's lives. That's a great in way to world. put it, and it needs to because if you want to go drive in traffic and go get some groceries at the store and put up with this and that and try to get gas at five o'clock you know yeah it's it's troubling and and you know sometimes universal harmony uh may not be as present so we have to be in the world (laughs) we have to watch our feet We, we, we have to um but we don't have to be stuck there and the more we are stuck there the less we're going to benefit from the graces of spirit and the Wisdom of divine mind and hearing that voice and actually being heard our pleas uh, often are sent off into the ether unanswered uh, because they're either mixed or cluttered or just lost in the static of everything else. And that's what meditation does. It calms the water. Uh, and to use a pond as a metaphor, uh, when the water is still in the pond, you can see clearly right through it what's underneath things that were invisible before now become visible and also on the surface it reflects more clearly what's above it so the mountain top will be more mirrored and more clear on the top so it's a two-fold thing we can penetrate but we can also reflect Uh, and that's not an act it's an activity yes becoming still is very much an activity but it's an activity of turning down Mind activity, world activity, that we're so conflicted, and
0: really, it's competing that. for for yeah. our bandwidth.
1: Sure, uh, so, that makes sense. So, so it a, sounds
0: like you're you're kind of clearing clearing the channel to see something that's already there, uh, you know. And it, it it's a way to to still the the choppy waters of the mind, as it were. That was a beautiful metaphor that you used to be able to see the truth and i think one of the things too that the truth that mysticism is seeking after is to see that divinity within ourselves so it's obscured by all of our you know pettiness our our ego our fears our angers and frustrations and so on we can get some of those things out of the way i think we can get at seeing who who we really are the sort of bigger uh in the bigger sense the capital you know the capital s self that's connected to the uh to the universe connected to the divinity behind behind all this material existence and in and through all of this material existence, you know, the invisible portion of it uh, from, from whence everything comes. And I think that, you know, that's a little bit of a, that's maybe another difference between say myth mysticism and Orthodox religion. I think Orthodox religion and more doctrinal and dogmatic ways of looking at it would have you believe that, belief and assent to certain beliefs is the key to God giving you favor and seeing God as some something outside of yourself. That's a distance away that you may only see after you die, or you may only see if, you know, he grants you some sort of vision of himself and, you know, specifically himself in the West, we would use that term. Whereas I think a mystic would look at, um, look at God in less, less, um, materialistic terms, more abstractly and certainly not, uh, as being male or female, but, but containing both of the masculine and feminine divine qualities. Um, and the mystic, I think, um, looks, looks beyond that, looks beyond to the, to the, to the universals, uh, past the particulars. Um, so that leads me into, um, the idea of, of Christian mysticism, Christian mysticism, which seems uh, kind of at odds sometimes with traditional Orthodox Christianity. And I know that you and in your vision had uh, imagery, which could be regarded maybe as Christian mysticism um, or a Christian mystic symbolism of, of, of some uh, nature. And I mean, you can talk about that a little bit more, but uh, tell me a little bit about how uh, your your experience in the crash, which you talk about in your book, uh, The Spirit in the Sky, you know, kind of informs your idea of what Christian mysticism is and, and how you, you see that. Well, the uh, this was in 1991. I uh, was flying at an air
1: show and had a problem with the plane, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to correct it. And I uh, finally surrendered, called a matey on the radio. And between calling the distress signal and hitting the ground, was maybe about 20, 25 seconds. Uh, of course, it was a very intense experience for me, so the time expansion was in full effect, so it seemed more like it was 20 minutes than, than 20 seconds, uh, and a lot happened. I saw a mystical vision of the universe, the galaxy. I heard a voice asking me if I wanted to live or die, and I you know, eventually <laughs> chose yes because I thought it through. And uh the ground still coming up, and then I was given a, a vision of what I knew I was going to be presented with, an image uh of what my life would be more like from that point on. And it surprised me very much. It was a very familiar portrait of Jesus. Uh it wasn't it was definitely a painting. It wasn't it wasn't the person at all. I was deaf I knew I was definitely looking at a, an image of a painting uh, that was very familiar. Mm-hmm. And um, and as I did, the painting came to life and um, turned to look straight at me, and as it did, it turned into my face as if I were looking in a mirror. And uh, as shocking and profound that was, as, as soon as I got that image, uh, it disappeared in a flash. And about three seconds later, the, the plane hit the ground, and I had that to deal with. Uh, but over the years, I've certainly thought about it and reflected. Uh, at the time, Christianity wasn't on my radar. As a matter of fact, I was very, very interested in anything but uh, my cultures, <laughs> religions, you know, mm-hmm. Christianity, you know, Judaism, any of those. As long as, sure, as, long sure. as it wasn't that, it, it, as long as it was something that I couldn't pronounce or it was brand yeah. new and exotic, um, I was very much interested because I, I really didn't like what had happened, uh, what all these ones were. But this vision haunted me and it caused a... Uh, Um, an opening to where, as I went on in my studies, I found a little bit about Gnosticism or Christian mysticism, even mainly Hall, the way he spoke about, because he spoke about all religions and traditions, the way he spoke and wrote about Christianity. I was very much from a mystical uh, point of view. I had a book called The Mystical Christ. So that was definitely his stance on it. And that, uh, that turned something that was very disturbing for me, um, into something that I could actually make sense of and incorporate in my life. Uh, Even the Apostle Paul said, it's the Christ in you that's the hope of glory. Uh, Quote from scripture, uh, from Jesus, attributed to the words of Jesus, that uh, I and my father are one. So this separation from the individual and the divine between man and God uh, really isn't there. And in a mystical approach, That's what you're really doing. You're you're not really talking to God and waiting for an answer and listening. Uh, You're actually having maybe, to quote from the book, the conversation. Or that there is, uh, you're actually with this presence as an ally, as a friend. Not some distant thing you have to worship. That it's so near and dear to you and it's within you uh, that... Um, it, it's such a different way of looking at it. And this image really kind of spoke to that. Uh, it yeah, took me a know, long it's...
0: time to come around to it, but that's where I am with it now. Well, thank you uh, for, for the honesty and sh- and sharing of that, uh, that experience. And I hope that uh, our listeners will pick your book up because it is fantastic and it, it does give some more insight into that experience. It's interesting because, I'm looking at a quote on the paper in my notes, and it's Luke 17, 21, and they're asking Jesus about where the kingdom of heaven will be found. And he says, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, the kingdom of God is within you, is within you. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of uh, scriptural and biblical evidence that would point at the kingdom of God or God or, you know, Jesus's. Own sort of um, uh, divine um, ex- the, the experience of Jesus the christ consciousness, if you want to call it that is something found within something found within us, and I think that 's what the mystics were were trying to find uh, at least the, the the Christian mystics that we uh, that we read today, and you know from from days gone by certainly and there are uh, obviously modern Christian mystics as well, not as many because you know I think religion has become more of a an orthodox and doctrinal sort of thing. But there are certainly people today who, uh, who do follow uh, a path of Christian mysticism, even if they may not necessarily call it that. And that's, uh, you know, a path whereby one is trying to be more uh, I- inward. You look, look inward instead of externally for, for everything and to find that presence and that divinity uh, within oneself. And uh, I thank you for, uh, for sharing your, your insights in that. So, uh, the last thing that we want to touch on, and this is going to be very short because we're almost out of time, unfortunately. And this book is, of course, as we've said, very, very full, packed full of great information. And we have covered not a, not but a tiny bit of it. Uh, but the the there's an interesting section where Manley Hall talks about science, philosophy, and theurgy. And I wanted to get into that just very, very briefly, maybe four or five minutes of discussion on that. Um, so I'll start with uh, his definition of, of science, and he makes these distinctions. I think in order for people to see that these are different, different ways of looking at life: science, philosophy, and theurgy. And I'll explain what theurgy is when we get to that point. But uh, science, we know, uh, is 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 order. And these are Manly Hall's words: is order, method, and instrument by which we can separate superstition from fact and opinion from justice. Science has its own peculiar limitations and is restricted to a region where its instruments are affected. In other words, you use instruments to see the objective world and look deeply into them and understand natural science and the goings on of, of, of the, the material world. And that's generally the realm of, of science, unless we're speaking of quantum physics or, or particle physics where we get down into a, a weird wacky world of, of non-materialism, non-Newtonian logic of its own. Um, philosophy, on the other hand, deals with the invisible, uh, with values and, and so on. And the philosopher puts the invisible universe in order with the aid of reason. It's, it, it, and then he says, it's def- with defective reasoning that destroys the validity in philosophy. So you have to have good reasoning in order to see things clearly using a philosophical methodology. And then more in tune with what we've been talking about, the mysticism and so forth, this is the third route that he he uses into into knowledge. This is a more intuitive one because he says the rational faculty has limitations. And for this reason, Neoplatonism introduces theurgy and theurgy is just a ritual meditation or action, magical or mystical or otherwise uh, designed to invoke, invoke or evoke God or the gods. So basically, invocation is bringing within one's one's realm of experience within the body, mind, and soul. And evocation is bringing uh, an experience. Let's say you're trying to evoke a spirit or evoke a, a a demon or what have you, if you're in some sort of black magic. So that's kind of the difference between evoking and invoking. But theurgy then is this um, is this methodology whereby one creates a connection to something divine, something divine. And that's the path of the mystic. You know, can you, can you speak a little bit more about that and how that, that, that is how, how that happens?
1: Sure. I would uh, even venture to say that meditation itself, the act of meditation is theurgic. It is theurgy. It is a great point. You're using theurgy uh, when you are meditating because It is the bridge. Um, You can scientifically prove to yourself that if you close your eyes, try to calm your mind, focus on your breathing, maybe repeat a mantra or uh, consider a mandala object um, and you're quiet, your heart rate will slow and your breathing will become longer, that the interval between the in and the out breath um, will become uh, more elongated. And that you can just, you can take your heart rate, I'm sure there's an app for it, or biofeedback. I mean, it's, you know, you can tell uh, it does work on that scientific level with the body. So it's an experiment that, uh, you know, once you can get into a very basic uh, meditative relaxed state, or listening to a uh, tape or something for fifteen minutes, you can check yourself and see, well, am I a little more relaxed now? am I a little bit less stressed? Uh, and you can probably find that you will be so it's a it's a very much you know a little bit of both it's it's kind of mystical and in, in the etheric sense, uh, but it's also very practical in the scientific sense, and it opens up that doorway I think that we were talking about before between. You know our individual lives and the universal divine mind uh, that this is this pathway, this door uh, that gets opened up because everything else is cleared. And that's even from the New Testament as well. It's uh, straight as the gate and narrow as the way that, um, that you can't, the straight and narrow, you can't bring in all this stuff if you want to walk through the doorway to the temple of the divine. Uh, because there's no room for it. How how can you meditate with God when you're upset about you know what your boss said the mm-hmm. other day, or you know the guy that didn't fix your car right, or the neighbor that won't return your tools, or you know if you're bringing yeah. that into your discipline, sure, you're, God's not going to hear you, and you're not going to hear him, or anything like that.
0: That's a great way um, to put it. Yeah.
1: Or if you do, it'll be very tainted and uh, kind of limited. It's like trying to grow a crop when you have all kinds of weeds and things you know you weed those things out so your crop can grow it's it's ancient in its uh origin but it's it's very here and now in in our lives and I think we can really take a lesson from it and try this other path, this calming clearing doorway that yeah. opens up and connects us with that so this that 's a great way to look at it. discipline. Yeah is is it's really spiritual and scientific it's kind of all at the same time because if you're too into much into philosophy or philosophic thought or say too lost in philosophic thought you can have all these reasonable rationalizations and insights and epiphanies um without really participating mm, and mm, and that yeah. that doesn't vitalize yes you may be right 100 percent about everything that your conclusions and insights are fantastic, Uh, but if you're not really applying them to your life, they they're kind of empty. Uh, As as interesting and as wonderful as they are, yeah, uh, they they're not fulfilling really their their purpose. Uh, And the same thing too. If you're just on the opposite end, if it's all about action, and well, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do this, trying to do that, then there's no contemplation or you know, meditative sort of approach to it. It's just un sort of unfocused
0: action. That's a, that's a great way to put it. You know, I think then that kind of gets into the idea of, of balance. And, you know, I think why he mentions science, philosophy, and, and theurgy, or or in the case of PRS, you know, philosophy, religion, and science, same thing. It's, it's three different realms of inquiry that are all needed to live a, a balanced life. And I think, um, one of the main main points in this book both both uh, parts one and two and three and four that there's a practicality to mysticism that that whereby one uh, brings into daily living the things that are learned uh, through meditation through contemplation through the study of of spiritual books and videos and lessons and so forth That in a sense if you don't carry that over into your life and experience it and, and, and have some direct experience with the absolute, with the divine uh, in, your, in your life, and then, and then allow that to spill over into your actions, that it's really a lot of this then is sort of a, you know, it doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't flower and I think that that's one of the most important things that Manley Hall brings up in all of his work is that there has to be a level of practicality and practical philosophy, which actually unfolds in your life to make it to make it better, to make you, um, you know, act in a more disciplined, positive, constructive, helpful way towards your fellow human beings and and your family members and, and all of that. So I think. Far from being, you know, kind of going back to what we talked about in the beginning, where we think of mysticism as something fuzzy or muddy or ephemeral, it's actually a very practical discipline. It's just a very practical way of getting in touch with something that's invisible, that divine within ourselves. And I think this book is a really great way to to orient you towards some of those practices and ideas. We talked a little bit last week, and you can go back and listen to the uh, the previous episode about the retrospection exercise of Pythagoras and the uh, morning meditation that that's recommended. And 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 those are those are great ways of of putting practical, uh, putting this to work practically. Another way, of course, is just a regular meditation practice, which I I teach about in my book, If You Can worry, You Can Meditate. And there's a lot of great resources all over the internet about mindfulness and meditation. And, and really, it's about creating a practice for oneself that that connects you to something bigger than yourself. Um, so with that being said, we've kind of run out of time. I do want to give you a little bit more time to, to wrap things up in a couple minutes uh, if you have anything else to add to it. But I think um, really just the biggest thing I can say is... Get this book, Meditation Disciplines and Personal Integration, or get the uh, the, the pamphlets, uh, the journal issues that Chris talked about uh, in the middle of uh, in the middle of the podcast, and it's on the previous podcast at the beginning as well, where you can find those. And I'll actually put it in the uh, in the uh, in the information when I when I post this this podcast, uh, where you can find this. Uh, but do you have anything else to add to kind of wrap this up, Chris? Well, the, the
1: title itself, meditation disciplines and personal integration. Um, there's a lot packed. Just even even in that, um, it's the book is not as clear on particular techniques as you are in your book, um, but the discipline is leaning towards you know dedication. Um, that you're an enthusiast. That you are interested in this. Being a disciple. A, a enthusiastic, uh, uh, person who wants, wants this, not discipline like you're being punished that we talked about last time. Yeah. Exactly. And this concept of personal integration and fragmentation is, I guess the opposite of integration that these, you know, pieces are broken up. We're divided in our lives. And then we have to divide our time, our resources, our money, um, our thoughts, um, uh, you know, we gave it the office. I don't have time for this now. Uh, you know, there's only so much to go around, and these parts sure, sure. get uh, thrown around. And um, I don't, I don't know if he actually got into this. I'm sometimes I get a lot of quotes uh, mis uh, misplaced. Um, but what it comes down to in this, you know, personal integration is that all this stuff is already there. Your connection to the divine, your Uh, Inner divinity, um, all these pieces are there. They just need to be dusted off a little bit. Uh, In Buddhism, they call your inner Buddhahood, um, that it's there. This gold is inside. And you just have to, it's really more of a process of clearing the other stuff away than it is, you know, trying to find something that's not there. It's not really approached from a, a feeling of lack.